All right, Sadie, thank you for joining us. Um, I guess we want to talk to you first about your book, which I have Yay! here. Um, I got this just before the Play First Summit. I got your book and Teacher's Tom, uh, Teacher book. Tom's first book. And I was reading that, I was having lots of fun. And then, because art's not my strong suit, mm. I'm very bad at um, art. When I was young, I used to have my mum do my art homework for me. <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> <laughs> and I take it to school, and then everyone goes, You didn't do that. I went, Yeah, I did. <laughs> and um, the work I did in class would be like nowhere near as good as what my homework was. Um, but I want to talk about wonder art, really, because in China, a lot of our um, art teachers are very wonderful, amazing artists, but maybe it's the first time they've ever entered into the early childhood field. And so for them, they're approaching it more from their expertise of art, but not from the expertise of understanding young children, three to six years old. So I want to talk about your book and kind of the important things you need to do as an art teacher, really, with young children. I love that because, you know, what's interesting about my relationship to art is that I am an accidental educator. So, which is a teacher Tom saying, which I love. Uh, I was a artist before I became an educator. And so for me, the arts in school were my life. You know, the, it was where I found power as a student. You know, being auditory dyslexia, give me the arts and I can, like the hundred languages, right? I can express myself. So approaching children, which is really interesting, is young children do not have the preconceived notion of what it should look like until we impose it upon them. So I think the, the part about the arts in young children is that it is the most natural place for children to play. It is literally giving them materials to play with. Now, one thing I think is really important, even at a young age, and I think this comes from my personal value system of honoring and respecting young children as full citizens beside me, co-creating, co-journeying in the educational pathway, is that I give them the honor of telling them how it's used and then let them choose, right? Yeah. So that they, and then playing games with materials so they can see all the possibility. I like to break open their creativity. So um, you'll see things like one of my favorite things. In fact, I was looking for a picture for um, a piece that I'm putting together is I would do things like get big sticks or poles and wrap markers on the end so that they had a six foot marker, you know, mm -hmm. or <laughs> a paintbrush so they had to like, navigate it and then paint but to really know that for young children they have the creativity to pursue materials with our trust and our setting up of the if you will the third teacher to hold their needs so like if we give them soft pastels uh, one you want to make sure and again it's really interesting i'm just putting out a piece all about this like um we want to look at is it non-toxic? Is it safe? Because it's very messy. It plays from the hands. Yeah. Right. It's all over. So we have to realize, <laughs> and you know, there, there's that thing that some have like really fine soft pastels are going to have pigments and are toxic. So you have to buy those that have the pigments that are not, but that we facilitate it by giving them an environment that if they don't like it on their hands, we show them how, if they don't mind it, that we give them the space where it's fine to have it go everywhere, right? 
Yeah, I hope that I'm answering your question. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, one of one of the reasons that I'm so bad at art is because since I've been teaching in China, I've always worked in schools where we had the art teacher and we had to go yeah. to art class. Yeah. And so I never really had to invest myself too much in art. I do much more in the last couple of years when I've gone more play-based and brought the art area, mm-hmm. art area into the classroom a lot more rather yeah. than just, you know, we're going to make 25 Mother's Day cards, you know, we're going to... Yeah, yeah much more of a, you know, you can go there anytime you want. You can use the paints anytime you want. Mm-hmm. Um, I, a lot of teachers get confused about when to teach children something. So when to like, just let them explore and when to show them the skills they need to take maybe their art further or take their interest further. So could you talk a bit about, you know, yeah, when no, you should no, teach and when you shouldn't teach something? Yeah, no, 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 that's brilliant. So like, you know, let's say we'll take crayons, something mm-hmm. as simple as crayons. Well, we know we can teach children just, and what I always did personally is in the atelier area, in the art area, is demonstrate what the crayon can do. Or if mm-hmm. we have a meeting, I'm like, I just want to show you, I'm putting out these crayons, but here's the cool thing. You may not understand it. This crayon has magic powers. Look what happens when you put it on its side. You know, it's like you can pick up textures all over the room. Like that's basic knowledge to us. Yeah. But children don't know it. And so you're just, you're making visible what that tool can do. Uh, Like rubbing the soft pastels that if you add water to it, it begins to blend. Mm. If they take a paper towel and scrub it, it will blend. You know, like. There's all these things that you can begin to do and what children do when we show them what a tool can do as a part of expressing is that they begin to cross-pollinate. Yeah. Right? And that's when the, the magic happens, when the wonder in the room starts popping. You're like, whoa, like there are some blog posts of mine from back in the day that were children exploring and taking things to another level. And I'm like, I had no idea you could do that. Mm-hmm. This is snap going on the blog. You know? <laughs> <laughs> You're so smart. That's but, very important. That the what children can do, but not what children should, should do, do. Yeah. which is often where right. people get confused. They yeah. go, Oh, you can do this with the paint, but this is what you're going to have to do. You're going to draw a flower yeah. with a green stem and you know, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. No. And I think the thing that's so important about that open ended process-based art, right? That it literally adapts to the child's developmental needs. So it's not making visible the delay. It's not making visible you've introduced it too soon. It's not, you know, it's literally the child brings themselves at their level to the process. So if you give them the soft pastels or you give them the paint or you, whatever it is that you provide them, they're going to take it at the level that they need it mm-hmm. for their needs. It's based on their needs, not my agenda. Yeah. Which is magnificent, right? It's like, wow. And then one of the things I love to do that I think really takes it to a whole new level is to do um, long-term art projects. So it's not one and done. Because children, I love giving children the experience of working over time. So maybe the canvas starts by being painted. Mm-hmm. 
it dries and then the next day they come in and they do oil pastels yeah. and then they pull it back down and do collage and then they pull it back down and paint on it again. And so it's constantly evolving. And again, I think that really, again, gives children a view of what's possible over time so that we give them spaciousness and time and art. Yeah. It doesn't have to be done in 20 minutes or 30 minutes. Exactly. exactly. But, yeah, what we saw is teachers always want children to finish in certain time. Like today, you're going to finish it so I can display your work or stand at home for your parents to see because parents really obsessed with those visible learning <laughs> evidence. Yeah. Actually, I think that then goes on to the next question we have about schedules. Um, mm -hmm. And you were Steiner Wardorf trained when you started teaching, is that right? I remember you said. Absolutely, and then, yeah. And we've been researching a bit about Steiner mm -hmm. recently because we hold a weekly Q&A session on our uh, blog where we talk about anything people have questions about. And one thing we've been talking about recently is schedules and rhythms. And rhythm is, a, is more of a style mm -hmm. thing here. So can you talk about you know, the importance of not having so many transitions yeah. and more of a rhythm in your day where children have time to really invest in things? I think one of the things that the Steiner movement to this day takes me to my knees, like I get teary-eyed thinking about it, is how transitions become a part of the rhythm that's it like if you think about the rhythm of the sun rising in in the morning mm -hmm. that it's not the same time every day right yeah yeah and it changes over the season so our rhythms really begin to breathe with the seasons so we're in tune so with the steiner perspective it's in tune but then the place that it gets really juicy to me is that let's say the rhythm of nap time. Um, it's a custom in the Waldorf tradition that the teacher may comb the child's hair before they lay down or when they get up. That there's these touch points in the rhythm that are filled with warmth and love, tenderness, yeah. real respect. And you know, like it's taking a moment that could be, okay, lay down on the bed and it's time for nap, you know, and here's your stuffy and, and your blanket. Please lay down, please. <laughs> right. Instead, it's like, you know, this beautiful space of we're just relaxing and however it goes, it goes. And even the lighting, you know, like they do these, um, which I've made, hand-dyed silk um, curtains. And I have this picture of a Waldorf school in San Francisco in their nap room. That's this red dyed silk that the light was shining through on the children taking a nap. Mm. And it was this warm pink glowy room. Wow. I would, I mean, to think that their rhythm meant changing the color of the space for nap. Yeah. Right. Like everything, every rhythm, just like the sun comes up and has a color. Mm. Every, every transition has a, a texture, a mood, an essence, a special, wondrous quality, just like the sunrise every morning. Yeah, I think I, that, you don't hear that, you know? Yeah, everyone's, yeah everyone gets really? their schedules that we'll do this and we'll do this next, and then we'll do this yeah. and we'll do this. It doesn't leave time for kind of, yeah, there's another word other than rhythm, like a, yeah. just to happen naturally. And over time, it becomes part of the culture of the classroom. 
Right, and again, I think Waldorf education, um, one of my mentors, Cynthia Aldinger, talks all the time, and I love it, about spaciousness. Mm-hmm. That children need space. They don't yep. have the same time that we have. Mm-hmm. So that when we develop a rhythm that's more like home and less like school, and you know, at home, it's like, you know, what time's dinner? I think six, but we'll see. You know, yes. it's, it might take a walk into the woods and then, you know, so everything moves in this very moving with the, the, the texture of the moment. And I love that. Yeah, I, I love that curtain idea too. Mm-hmm. I wish we could do that. Um, we have these beautiful walls in our classroom, like the whole wall is windows. We have yeah. all this natural light come in. But um, it's very technified, our school. So we have these electric blinds that come up and down. And then they change depending on the wind. So if it gets yeah. windy, they will go up yeah. for safety. So then the kids are napping, they're sleeping, it's and nice and dark. And the children's rhythm, they, they take that as a sign of, it's time to wake up now. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, and the other thing I've seen, all these, like, again, the Waldorf movement is well worth investing yourself in taking a peek at what they do. Another thing I saw someone do in a public school was buy all of those little LED candles. So like in a real Waldorf school, they light candles all the time. Like they light the candle. So I worked in a Waldorf forest school. Um, It was really the last position I had in 2015. And like when it was time for a meal, we used real china real um, candles, real napkins, and the children helped to set the table. They got up and cleaned it up, you know, and we're talking three, four-year-olds, and real candles being lit um, on the table with the children. Now, public school, you can't do that, but I've seen schools do the LED lights at mealtime, at nighttime. Like, every child had their own little light. Again, giving something very you know, something so simple, but it gives them a touch point, a moment that feels like, okay, this is my signal. All is well in the world. Yeah. All is good. We were, we were going to do the award of training in Hong Kong um, back in, when was it? March? March March or April. Because of COVID, we were like, when we go back, we're not going to be able to travel anywhere for the summer because of the the situation of the world. So we thought we'll stay in Hong Kong, which is right next to where we uh, live and work. And then we'll do a, the ward of training. But then this COVID went on so long that it all got cancelled. We weren't able to do it. Um, but we've been reading a lot about it because we're very interested in, or we're interested in Reggio, and we're also interested in other play-based approaches. Mm-hmm. So I guess, what, what do you see as the similarities or differences between Reggio? Well, here's, I, and this is so interesting because I chew on this a lot because I'm half Waldorf, half Reggio, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I cannot go either way fully. Um, what... Waldorf is very teacher-driven, and a lot of the crafts and things that come out of it are teacher-driven, teacher agenda, although there's free play. So when the children are let loose, there are completely, like, loose parts are the name of the game for a Waldorf school. Yeah. Uh, Silks, nature, loose parts are primarily there. I mean, I've seen pieces of wood that make forts easily like they have all the things, right, for natural play. But um, the one thing I see missing is following the children's interest, like really honoring the child as being a value in what we do. 
and yes. a value in like for me personally and i always you know for me i always test against my own soul of truth like i always take any idea and i have to take it in and go okay now what's so for me and what i know is i had someone when i was four years old looked at me and i told them my idea of what i wanted to do and an adult right said wow that's really great let's do that let's see what do you think you need you know like that they saw me they heard me and they valued me as a contributor i would be a different person today you know i yeah. might have hit i might have been not such a late bloomer <laughs> it's <Yeah>. like <laughs> maybe the dark teens would not have happened but i think for the waldorf movement a little that is lacking in it the magic and the wonder of storytelling, of puppetry, of, um, of that free play is there, but yeah. there's nowhere for the child to lead. Yeah. What I see with Reggio Emilia is there's this magnificent following the child, honoring these projects, these incredible environments built, you know, to explore different concepts and ideas but lacking the warmth of what waldorf brings in yeah. its rhythms and its its environment like some like when i went to reggio Emilia, some of the rooms were a little bit cold to me yes you know and lacking like it felt like mother and father yeah. <laughs> it's like, like mom warm you know and, but we're gonna do what she wants me to do and dad he's let me loose but it's a little cold you know? uh, i really like that and that's a really good analogy like the mom and dad yeah, yeah. um yeah well reggio we actually have a lot of people we've known who've gone to reggio have, have felt a bit disappointed when they've gone there mm. maybe for that reason because i think a lot of people in china reggio is you know it's private it's expensive yeah it's it's exclusive um whereas in reggio it's not it's it's, it's for the community um so you know they don't have the money that say the schools in china that are doing reggio have building million dollar worth of uh, buildings and getting every piece of furniture they can from the most expensive childhood mm. magazines um so they get they go and they go oh i guess the same it looks a bit cold it doesn't have the kind of warmth um with waldorf i think the one thing I want to learn most about Waldorf is the storytelling. Story I feel like that's what they've really good at. Really oh good my at. gosh. Yeah. So I took multiple storytelling courses through um, the Steiner movement in the US. And one of the things that I really got was that, and I took this into the public school. So half my career was in public school. And I have to tell you, I'm so grateful I did that because I lived in constraint. Mm -hmm. benchmark standards and pressure yes and I found freedom joy and wonder you know so I know that it can happen in any environment you have to navigate it but what I brought to the academic was Walter storytelling so when you began and I just used my own fairy tales like once upon a time there were three bears a papa bear a mama bear a baby bear and you're telling the child the story right it goes in, and this is what Walter talks about. It goes in and it creates an inner impression so that the child is conjuring what that is that you're telling, their own imagery. So to me, it's storytelling to the bones and the marrow. Yeah. And then they go home and they tell the story. 
And then I bring out a puppet show and we tell the story with puppets. And sometimes it was just plastic figures from the dollar store because I'm a poor teacher, right? (laughs) (laughs) But they didn't care those little plastic bears and a little plastic girl. And they tell the story that we give literacy. There's a book that I read. I'm trying to think who wrote it. It was called Living Literacy. That literacy that breathes. Yeah. That's tangible. That words are like loose parts. Stories are like loose parts. So when I did this, children would take the story and automatically begin to play with it like a game. Well, once upon a time, there were, you know, three farting brothers who were walking through, you know, and you know how boys are like, they just start making up the story, but they have the structure to take their ideas into. It's Mm -hmm. magnificent. Yeah. And then the other thing is like talking about like using a paintbrush, uh, Tippy the paintbrush, like all of the storytelling of how to use things because children naturally feel everything's alive. Mm. You know, so like the marker falls on the ground and you go up and say, it's okay, I'll put you back where you belong. You know, and the child's yeah. like, you know, and the child who goes, it's not live, Mrs. Holy. And I go, shh, it doesn't know that. You know, it's like, <laughs> it doesn't know it's alive. We're not going to tell it. Yeah. But they love that, that everything is magical and everything is valuable. Everything has worth in the room, even the broken crayon, mm-hmm. you know, oh we're going to save this broken crown because we're going to melt it down and give it new life. Yeah. And then the children, it just feeds their souls. You know, it's yeah, I love that. I think that's very similar. We spoke to, you know, Greg Bottrell? Mm-hmm. Um, he's, he's a UK earliest teacher. He wrote the book, Can, Can I, I Go, go and, and Play, play now? now? Which is a very okay, popular yeah. book in the UK. Yeah. And we spoke to him the other day too. And he's, talk, he's writing a new book about what he calls the seven cents. Seven and the, cents and the children. The seven cents was about how every object has like a soul, I guess, too. And so it's very, very similar stuff to, yeah. And that's what, actually what Rudolf Steiner harnessed in his understanding of the young child, this magical thinking, right? Yeah. And, and with that, like I did puppetry, like I buy just, I had this one little puppet, it was a mouse and beautiful little mouse um, puppet. And uh, I was not the one who talked its voice because I would forget what voice it was and which one was mine and I always messed it up. <laughs> you know? So I just, I could never keep it straight. It was just too complicated for me. So I'd have the puppet talk to me and I'm talking five and six year olds, right? Like, oh, Mookie, what? Oh, it's okay. Are you scared? Oh, it's all right. He's really scared. And you know, the children are like literally captivated mm. by me telling them what the puppet's saying. They're that invested, even though they see my hand is holding it, they're completely in that world. To me, that is stunning. That's stunning what the power to activate the imagination as a force for them to blossom as human beings. Like, ah. And And I do think that Waldorf really has a honing in on that when it's done right, really has it. The other thing I want to mention that's super important about Waldorf education is one of the things I got early on from my mentor who was a kindergarten teacher in Denver, 
Mm -hmm. um, she, I went in, uh, and this was in the 90s, to watch her, right? Because that was part of my practicum, to watch the teachers. And, and she was sitting there at the desk and uh, at the ta long table with children, and they were, uh, had bread dough that they were making into shapes to bake and to eat for snack. And she goes, Bobby, kind hands. I'm like, she didn't look around. You know, like, she literally had a sense of the whole room and the children in it. Like, it was a mindfulness practice. She tuned in so much to the children, she knew exactly where everyone was and the sounds they were making. Yeah. And that moved me so much in that she didn't correct through, Bobby, stop it! <laughs> it was this, you know, and yeah. it ended up, I sang all day long. And I actually damaged my vocal cords doing it. But, <laughs> but imagine like, it's time to pick up and go, 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 go. You know, it's like you just start singing and they follow you like little, you know, it's just magic yeah. that I learned that if, you know, singing will do more than anything else on the planet to move children from one space to another. And they don't mind if you can sing or not. Yeah. Everyone and they don't mind. Them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? Adults don't mind either because I always think Dr. Jean and all of her little CDs, mm -hmm. the woman can't carry a tune. Yeah, <laughs> and she's an inter international star when it comes yeah. to early childhood education. It's not things. the point, right? Well, I think we have a lot of people who talk to us about... Um, they're in a curriculum school, I guess, similar to what you were in before. We worked into an American Common Core International School, and it was very difficult. But one thing we worked was how to bring play into the curriculum, which isn't best, but you still, it's the best you can do in a situation. Absolutely. Um, and a lot of people ask us, but how, you know, we have to teach this, we have to teach that, how, how do we do it? Mm -hmm. So I wonder, I remember you talking to before to someone in one of your uh, Wonder Tribe talks where you talked about how you wouldn't do all the worksheets that other teachers were doing. And <laughs> then how you convinced the parents to be like, look, trust me, and then this is better for your children what I'm doing. Yeah, so what I did, and this was really important. I, I always started with back to school night when it's just the parents with me, mm -hmm. that I would explain my methodology and I had handouts as well, but I would continue the conversation after that night. And what I would tell them is I was a brain-based educator. And, that, and I would give them the, the research that when a child has it in their hands, they have it in their body, they have it for life. You know, if I give them a worksheet, I might be able to show them how to do it. But the next day, there's no guarantee they understand it. Yeah. So an example is we were required, because I was with nine other kindergarten teachers, we were required to do animal studies. Like there was different pieces of the like literacy, math, social studies, et cetera. So maybe the all, whole thing of um, kindergarten teachers were gonna talk about owls and the life cycle of owls, right? And they would give the worksheets and they cut out, you know, tracers to make little owls yeah. and all of that. Well, instead, what I would do is I'd have a paper plate and art materials and we'd create a tree. They would create what kind of owl they were. So they would create this three-dimensional interactive piece based on their ideas, their research. 
when that went home and I bring Waldorf, I tell the story of the, of an owl and I'll tell you through my Waldorf training, I can spin a story on the moment, mm -hmm. literally. And I think it's a really good skill to develop, yeah. you can, like just spin it. Um, but that, that, and I called it habitat making instead of worksheets mm. that the children would take that home and tell the story of the owl that they created. And it moved parents. Like they were moved by it. They could see it because their child was enthusiastic. You know, I'd show them the difference. Do you want your child doing this or this? Which one will have the impact? You just show them like, duh. Yeah, <laughs> you, know? Yeah. <laughs> you know, oh, you know, it's like, um, I taught children in kindergarten to take copy paper and I taught them the three skills it takes to create art out of paper, which is like tubing, tabbing, and curving. Mm -hmm. So with those three skills, and you know, the, the curving, all of it takes cutting. Um, I had children building like one child's parents, it was a rich school, loved skiing and they go skiing every Christmas. Well, he built a ski slope out of copy paper Wow. That's good. That's engineering. Yeah. Right. Like, so you look at that and do you want a child sitting at a desk who has 6,000 <laughs> worksheets mm -hmm. or do you want them to take those worksheets and make a ski slope? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> but, yeah. I, and I, I think it's when you make it visible and you're saying, look at the capacity for them to do this. Mm -hmm. And I still get messages today back from parents going, I can't believe the impact you had, the skill set. So how did that affect the other teachers then? Um, <laughs> was, was, that, was that like, did they come around and be like, oh yeah, or were they seeing you as like the enemy? Yeah. <laughs> a little like the enemy, a little like the kinds of things like they would come, like maybe a teacher would come and because we had a PD after school and she'd open the door to tell me something. And and this one in particular would always say, you're so cute. Your kids are so independent. Yeah. That's so cute. You know, <laughs> it, they just couldn't, I don't think they, any of them knew how to give children that kind of say, mm -hmm. because they would literally, the children, like if I was doing whole groups, so there were certain things I had to do. And if the administrator walked in, I'd better be doing them. So I'd have, whole group. Now, luckily my principal was a musician and a songwriter. So he was creative. So he appreciated me. Um, but you know, they'd be sitting there and I'd be talking about the agenda of what we had to do today and my thoughts about what we could do and what do you think we could do? And they would say, I have a better idea than you do. For the educators with, you know, who worked in the hallway with me, that's an unthinkable thing to open up. Yes. I think it was so far out of their realm. You know, for me, it was exhilarating to hear them go, no, 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 Mrs. Hoy, I've got a better one. We're going to go here. We're going to do this. Like I yeah. had sheet factories. I had, you know, they would construct their learning. And then and I have to say that we've been through that stage too, because when we back in the, uh, when we back, when we were teaching in the academic school, everyone's focused on worksheet. And then me and Josh and another two, three teacher, we are going like, okay, we're going to do project. We're not going to use the worksheet. 
and then we share our work with other teachers. They don't say bad things to us. They just all keep silence, not commenting <laughs> on us. Like, okay, you do your thing. We focus on our thing. So it's very difficult for teachers who want to like, how to say, stand up for the children. Mm. So very neat. Yeah. I also would have people say to me like the older grades. So like the first grade teachers would say, you should be the art teacher. You're yeah. so creative. You should be the art teacher. So they'd want to put me like, you'd be a really good art teacher because you're so creative with the children. They saw it like creativity, not more as learning. academic learning when it was more act. And this is the thing with the brain science that I would, you know, work hard to communicate to the parents and not that I always succeeded, but that worksheets are actually the least academic thing that you can do. Mm -hmm. You know, like if you truly want an academic foundation for your child, it's, it, and I wouldn't say a free-for-all play-based because I've been in Head Start where there was no, no teacher agenda, maybe no teacher presence, but a body called a teacher there. Yeah. <laughs> like there was a human being breathing in the room and there was the children. But with a, and that's what I love about Reggio Emilia, there's a real intention of leaning into the children and getting up underneath their interest. Yes. And that, my friend, is power yeah. academically. And I think that's where a lot of teachers, maybe even parents too, get confused. They see play bases just play, play not with, doing with, with, with the teacher just sitting down, drinking a coffee and making sure no, <laughs> one's, no one's killing themselves. And then you, the other special, you've got the academics, you know, and you need to find that middle ground where, where, where it's very academic. Some, when you go into play really deeply, some of the things the children teach you mm. is like crazy. I had a student who knew so much about trains and he would tell me where the fastest trains in the world were, how long it could take. And it's just kind of like, I have no idea what you're talking about. It's way over my head. I need to do my research so I can help you. <laughs> yeah. And I think this goes to something that's very interesting is in a classroom, so like the average classroom I had had 25 students in it, right? That's a lot of children in a room. Yeah. And out of those 25, you have those who have deep interests walking in, like the trains or cars yeah. or whatever it is. And then you have students coming in who are shy and repressed. And you have students, like you have all of these dispositions entering the space and a spectrum, just like we're talking about play-based academic, from feeling they have any kind of impact in learning to feeling like they got, they're totally impacting it all. Yeah. And I think that is the biggest challenge of teaching is to be up underneath all of them. And it's one reason, I think the project approach from, you know, the project approach, meaning the project approach as a methodology that's been published. I'm trying to remember the name of the book. It was in the nineties when I, took it up, um, is a perfect way to on-ramp into that kind of thinking. But I don't like that the whole class engages in one topic mm -hmm. because it leaves out so many children who are not really in it. Yeah. And is that happening in Reggio a lot? Because um, is it, do they usually have one big project or do they have lots of little projects? I think they have, so this is one thing with my visit with uh, Stephanie and Lindsay that was so surprising to me, is that they had uh, citywide projects. Oh, so wow. that 
yeah, so there would be projects that were even going on years, which means you could see the traces of time in that project, right? Yeah. And some would last three years, some might last 12 years. And then there was this collaboration, like you hear about that collaboration. Well, if you think that you're all kind of in this overarching, you know, concept, we'll say, of what was, one of them was um, like plant life, uh, digital plant life or whatever, something like that. Like if you think you're dwelling in that idea over three or four years in collaboration with multiple educators, that's pretty dynamic, right? And at the same time, I could see other littler projects happening with children in classrooms. But it was not what I expected, for yeah. sure. And in the schools in Metro, are they usually mixed age or same aged? Good question. What I saw was not mixed age, yeah, but they were able to go between classrooms. Yeah. So there was, there was freedom. Mm -hmm. That's what I saw too. Because I read, I think it was in the 100 Languages of Children, where it said, I think Malaguzzi said it, where um, uh, it's better for projects to develop if children are in a similar level of their development. Right. Um, we're in a mixed stage school, which is really good because the younger children get to learn from the older children and the older children get to learn from younger children. But sometimes they have vastly different ideas. Yeah. So it's, it's hard to say a good assembly or morning meeting when you've got a five-year-old that really wants to talk about this and you've got a three-year-old that's not really ready to talk about this kind of stuff yet. Yeah, no, and you know, Waldorf's the same way. It's three to five, three mm -hmm. to six years old, sometimes three to seven years old in a kindergarten. So, and I do think there is something so powerful about the older child having yes. a relationship to the youngers. Yeah. I think That's what we got a lot from Peter Gray when yeah. he talked about that and his, uh, the Sudbury yeah. Valley School. And it's like, yeah, that's the benefit. Um, but I think often schools, they limit it. They just have like the three, four and five-year-olds mixed, but then they don't get to mix with the six-year-olds or the seven-year-olds or the eight-year-olds. So it's very limited mixing. And I think that's where real benefit can come from if the primary school children are playing outside and why can't the early years children play with them too? And I think... Honestly, the issue we're facing with a lot of this, and I know you'll hear the ring of truth, is it really comes from the adult's capacity to hold it. Yeah. So it makes me nervous that the three-year-olds are on the playground with the eight-year-olds. What are the three-year-olds going to be feeling from me? Mm -hmm. What are the eight-year-olds going to feel from me? Like I think that, it, again, I go back from my own practice you know, even in fairy dust, it's ended up being my practice of trust and respect. That if those elements aren't there, then we have no foundation to stand on. Mm -hmm. And you have to be willing to try new things and see how they go and give them time to either succeed or fail. And to, to trust the children as collaborators in it. Yeah. Like, you know, hey, buddy, tell me, how's it going? You know, like, you know, I noticed you're not engaging over there. I just want to make sure you're cool, you know? Mm -hmm. oh, okay, cool. We, yeah. We got it. What? Yeah. what? You know, it's like you just collaborate. Yeah. In my, pre in our previous school, I, where I taught kindergarten age, so I taught the five and six-year-olds, we started a thing where we'd have the eighth and ninth graders come oh, in the reading and called Reading Buddies, and they yeah. would read with the children. It started off very kind of awkward. 
you know, the eighth graders were kind of awkward yes, with the young there. children. Mm-hmm. The young children were, some were really confident and like trying to give them hugs yeah. and they were like, <laughs> and then, but then over time, they stopped reading because what they were doing were becoming friends mm-hmm. and they were talking more. And so I was looking at them and thought, well, maybe I, should I go around and say, you're not, you need to be reading, this is a reading budget <laughs> time. But then I thought, no, because actually what they're doing is more valuable than say, just getting yeah. a book and go, helping them correctly spell a word. Um, so after this one, it takes time for things to really work. It does. And I think we have to be really, again, allow, even ourselves, I think teachers hide behind the door because they don't want to go through the phase of not feeling competent. Mm-hmm. You know, to go from teacher directed to collaborating with children is going to be an uncomfortable transition, you know, to have the loud class class versus the class next door where the teacher is, you know, giving them candy to keep quiet or yeah. whatever, right? Like that. <laughs> we met one teacher that actually told a student, if you sit nicely, I'm going to give you candy, real candy. Was I, oh, no. I was so surprised. In the kindergartens that I was a part of, that was the main, they had jars filled of Skittles. Oh, and wow. that's how the majority of the women on my, you know, floor treat the children how they had quiet classrooms i had the loud classroom yeah because i did not hand out skills yeah i think collaboration is so important isn't it um not just within your classroom but within your whole department yeah. and we talk we're, are we read in the, the 100 language of children you know it talks a lot about not just being like oh that's really good what you're doing but really challenging each other's viewpoints what your documentation is and how you're going with a project and I think that's something a lot of teachers struggle with because they're afraid to say something critical or create a divide Mm -hmm. but I'm we're very big on that you know if you think I'm doing it wrong tell me so I know tell me to grow to improve yeah well and that's one thing you know I have the assist the certification program and I have my first graduates that are now in the assistantship which is part two of the, the, it's where the real training starts to happen. Mm -hmm. And I'm training them to take possession of who they are as leaders in the field. So that I have them present. So like they had to present who they were and what they believed in. Um, And we're going to videotape them doing that. Like, you know, I'm, I'm collecting the specimens of that in Google drives and I'm actually giving them back feedback to support them. Like it's, it's the only space that I feel I have the permission to do that with someone because you don't have permission to tell someone, you know, you know, even so much as saying, you know, it's time to get over acting like you don't know anything. Yeah. I'm not going to tolerate it anymore because you're a beast. Step up. You know, it's like, <laughs> you know, even even that. I think we're so isolated from each other that we 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 don't want to hurt each other, so we don't want to call each other on our stuff. Yeah. Or we don't want to go. Have you ever thought about this? But yet, that's where true growth happens. Yeah. In art school, my favorite professors were the ones like I remember. I did intaglio, and I put out my portfolio, and the class cheered and. It goes very moving. I was very dramatic. And, and the professor walked up and she looks and she says, 
not bad, but you got work to do on composition and started pointing out. And you know what? I learned more in that critique. It brought me to my knees. It was the most loving, giving, dynamic thing she could have ever done instead of yeah. going, yeah, it's really dramatic. And, you know, we can all see the impact of it. But she held me at a higher standard. That's good. That's exactly what you want, isn't it? And you want it within your teams. You want people to go, I love what you're doing, but you know, I think the way you're doing this could be improved because I don't think you're really honoring the children here and people are afraid to do that. That's it. And that's even like in my certification program, one of the things I saw last year that I completely failed them on. Well, I failed, I mean, it was just a debacle, honestly, um, because I, I gave free form, right? Like everybody handle yourselves and it's all good. Well, mm -hmm. that doesn't work. Um, but I did not prepare them even in training for um, documentation. And I really see people struggle with it. Yeah. Well, actually, we get a lot of questions about documentation yeah. and how to start. But we always tell people, before you start with documentation, you've got to build a relationship with the children yeah. first. Because yeah. a lot of, one mistake I made as a teacher when I went play-based was I spent too much time at the beginning of the year just observing children mm -hmm. rather than building that relationship with them first. Um, but oh my gosh. documentation, where do you, where's like, can you have any tips for people to start with? Like, how do you... How do you decide what's, what you should be documenting? Which is a question loads of people ask us. Yeah, so for me, the way it happened is that it all took place in that sense of wonder in the classroom. So like when the it was like not something I had to seek, it came to me. Mm -hmm. And it, it absolutely, I love what you said. It's like, you know, that was gold. Really, It was like, yes, it was in the relationship. So it might be we were on the playground so like we were on the playground one time, this is a story I tell a lot because it was one of those moments that I still get goosebumps over when we were on the playground and a little family of turtles were walking across the concrete and the children were like, they need a home. They've lost their home. Like they had a narrative, four-year-olds. We got it, you know, like that moment, I couldn't construct it. I couldn't pull it out of my hat. I couldn't go home and plan it. You know, yeah. It's like, to me, the best documentation is what rises unexpectedly out of the children's relationship to each other and the environment that is like, has my mouth going, yeah. <laughs> whoa. Sometimes it's like, a like I had a, a little girl who broke her leg when she came back into the classroom the love and care that the children gave her and how much they missed her. Like so simple, right? Again, snapping pictures, writing what they were saying. And you know, it, it's one of those things that every, I think then the documentation is what something everybody wants to read. Mm -hmm. And that I'm still talking about it because it was that moment. I think that's a very, a very good tip for any, for any of our followers too, you know, would you want to read it? Yeah. Don't just write down, oh, they were making Play-Doh on the table. And, uh, and so contrived. They're using their fine motor skills. You know, I, I, would you want to read it? And I think one thing from the Play First Summit I loved was the lady from New Zealand talking about the oh. learning stories. And that was one we took away a lot. Of. That's kind of what we need to be doing more in our practice. Oh, I think there's, yeah. I And I did not do learning stories in my practice. And it's like, 
I love it so much. I want to go back and teach (laughs) (laughs) so I can do it and feel it because it's like, so it, it's all about relationship. And I think you've nailed it is, is documentation is making visible the relationship Mm -hmm. of the children in the classroom and those spectacular moments that, you know, show the power of who children are in the world. You know, I think when we get into documentation to, you know, and this is where I'm really, um, I don't know, like the failure of my teaching documentation to my students has me really digging deep this year, going, what is it that matters? And and I think people get lost in the minutiae, you know, and, and I personally, I, when I walk into a school and there's something push, push pinned up with pictures and it's 10 pages long, I'm yeah. like, and that's yeah, very it. good. I think for anyone who does the Wonder Tribe trainings, the Fairy Dust teaching trainings, you'll see a lot of great uh, resources for mm-hmm. how to do documentation, how to observe children, how to do displays, um, which I found really helpful. Yeah, and I'm gonna up that that training just because again, it's like, and as a graphic artist, as an artist who is all about presentation and trained in it, you know, and critically trained in it, right? I just I forget that not everyone has that understanding that documentation also to really do do honor to what you witnessed and captured of the children you want to have symmetry or mm-hmm. you know the design pull you in you know to be something that is in some way a piece of art because it is like i said all of the documentation i've done that came from that place I, it's what i talk about when i'm on stage mm-hmm. that those moments were that important and documenting it put it in my soul I'll never forget I wonder what your thoughts are on say digital documentation first a physical like a portfolio Mm. um because we've had that discussion in our school and it's kind of pros and cons to both with the digital it's more uh friendly with terms of the environment not use so much paper children can take their work home and you can take a picture and upload it parents can see it more easily but I always feel it's kind of a bit cold compared to having something physical they can touch Mm. Yeah, you know, I, I shifted that on that in 2009 when one of my students' father was in Iraq, mm-hmm. so, you know, he was in the military. And he, I got to meet him before he took off, and he was gone for the full year. And um, because I had a chance to meet him and saw him, like, cheering that he wasn't going to be there for his kindergarten, his daughter's kindergarten year, I did digital documentation that went out through um, email. And I have to tell you, it was pretty incredible. In fact, I did video and we had, I had a smart board in the classroom. So the documentation would go up and I actually, because it was digital. So this is like a positive about digital. I allowed the children to choose the photos we used and the words, so we constructed the documentation together in lifetime, and then it went off to their parents. Mm-hmm. And that process was profound. 
Okay, that's very interesting. It was profound. Yeah. And the impact on the families, I would say the thing with that, and then after that, and that was just a public school. After that, I went into a Reggio school and it was all on the wall. And what I found was the parents who received it digitally were more engaged in it because it met them where they were. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that the parents at the Reggio school never went into the classroom, really. They were just dropping off and going. No one dwelled on it. Yeah. That's interesting. So, yeah. I, I think, well, so we've been having to go much more digital because we've been, for the last few months, teaching through Zoom. Yes. And, and that's very right. hard to teach a three- and four-year-old who doesn't speak English over Zoom. <laughs> uh, and I also think the documentation in the classroom really is for... And this is what I saw in Reggio, and this is what I thought was really cool. One of the big takeaways that kind of confirmed my feeling is the documentation in the room is for the children. Yeah. yeah. And the digital that I did was for the parents. Mm -hmm. So the one positive I got from COVID and doing distance learning was I was asking children to use the iPads. We have iPads in our classroom. We don't really use them. Um, I said, why don't we get the iPads out and they can take pictures of the things they like and send them to me. And so that's how they were starting to use their, I guess, documentation and picking the things they wanted. And we were doing kind of like photo challenges too. But I say, can you find three of something, four of something? And they would, and they made a display of their, like the numbers they found in the classroom through objects. So there are definitely positives. Um, and then I guess as a parent too, you don't want a big fold like this to take home at the end of the year. Do you have I put it? Exactly. Oh my gosh. It's like crazy pants. Yeah. yeah. And I do think the physical portfolios of children, one thing I think is magic, just that popped in my head, is how much it's the story of the child and the power of who they are. Mm -hmm. and, and one of the things I always felt as an early childhood educator is one of my tasks was to make certain every parent knew the magnificence of the child they had. Yeah. That That's my true. utter belief in that child, no matter what, that, that I, I believe they were, you know, an incredible, magnificent, extraordinary human. Mm -hmm. And that portfolio was such a testimony to that. Yeah, we, I remember last semester, we, I just put some papers on the table for a story making table. And I just said to the children, if you want to make a story, you can go there, make one as a stapler there, you can staple it together. And not everyone did it, but there was about five or six kids that always went there. And then they made stories. If they wanted, we helped write down what was in the story for them. And then they read them to the class, they took them home. And then one dad said, I didn't know she could write stories like that. So it was like really powerful ideas. Now there's documentation. Yeah. And that yeah. was a dad who was usually a bit more, you know, they wanted more learning, more academic learning. And they saw then in, in her natural play how much the academic world can be brought into that too. And I think that's part of our challenge as play-based is to always, to make, like, if something happened in the classroom, I made it, like, every, I actually had a schedule of parent communications that I did because I wanted to make sure I made visible to every parent every week something very academically powerful their child was engaged in mm -hmm. that they may not see yeah because it was play-based yeah. or hands-on learning or whatever you know it that it wasn't a worksheet so how do i make visible 
that learning. And I think that's really important that we own our authority in it. You know, like every public school I went to, no one challenged my classroom because I stood proud, you know. Yeah. And the proof is in the pudding. Yeah. And not, you know, I still say, and I look back at it, and this is why I can speak to educators now with, with absolute certainty is that I was in a school of 1,500 students from, you know, pre-K to third grade, nine kindergartens. I'm the only hands-on play-based one, and, not, and it's a wealthy school, not one parent complaint Yeah. in, you know, four years, not one. Yeah, and it shows one, yeah. it's, we have more power than we give ourselves credit. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's one thing that teachers are scared about going play-based or scared about putting away the worksheets is, you know, just go for it. Give it a try, show the evidence, show your research to the parents. And then when they see the children going home happier, going home more talkative to then they'll, they'll, the parents will be happy as well. Yeah. It, it's like, you know, when uh, multiple years, especially with the kindergarten, first grade level, the children's crying, refusing to leave the classroom at the end of the year because yeah. it was a space of being honored yeah. and having voice and they didn't want to leave it. You know, parents are looking like, way that class was bonded you know it wasn't really i think it really is when children are really given their respect yes As full, i mean again i go back to reggio it's like one of those statements that i can't get over it's like oh you know there's things about waldorf education i'll never get over you know like brings me to tears reggio is that idea that this person in front of me is fully a human being just like my best friend you know, just like my husband, just like, you know, that four-year-old, that three-year-old has just the same rights. Yes. To be treated and the same way. I think it's true that as well, you know, you don't have to uh, commit yourself to one approach, you know, take what works in Montessori, take yeah. what works in Waldorf, take what works in Reggio, Angie Play, IB. Uh, IB, whatever it is. Yeah. And then you bring it and with your culture, your community to do what works. And I think for personality of teacher, like I think I will never judge another teacher for their path mm -hmm. if I don't know them yeah. and their personality and their disposition. And, you know, like we're, I think this is the thing with like really getting into the other part of Reggio Emilia that I loved was the view of the child, the view of the teacher, education and the family. When you look at the view of the educator and you really stand in it and understand what gives your perspective. Then when you see a teacher who's deeply committed to worksheets, you can understand it's just their view of being an educator, being informed by their past. Mm -hmm. And it's not something to judge, but I actually have empathy going, yeah. okay, you know, how can I help open up that perspective a little bit? Yeah. So everyone's on a different stage of their learning journey, as you, you will often say. Yeah, exactly. So we can have compassion and in uh, honor of each other, even if we have opposing views. I think our profession needs that. Yeah. Unification. Mm -hmm. So I, I was going to say, because we're almost run out of time, mm -hmm. because uh, we only can put 30 minute slots onto our uh, yes. uh, platform. Oh. Yeah. But so I say anyone like 
go on Fairy Dust teaching, join the Wonder Tribe, it's amazing. We've been part of it for two years. And every time I would do something, Mickey would go, oh, you could do it this one. I go, where did you learn that from? Oh, Fairy Dust. <laughs> but, uh, I'd ask her, what, what's, what's coming next? Is there any exciting oh my God. stuff happening? Yeah, well, so what's happening next that I am working like six, you know, I did the play first summit, which was yep. like, it took me two weeks to get over it because I did like 16 hour days. I did all the design work and uplifting of all of this stuff. Anyway, I went right into the virtual wonder box, which is going to be the virtual and in-person wonder sparks. So <laughs> one of my biggest concerns is educators inside of this pandemic need to self-care. I think that's the priority and not to overwork. You know, like I was a teacher that put in hours and hours of work. And I think we're in a time where we need to honor our own energy and our own boundaries. So the wonder box is my gift. So like the wonder tribe will get it for free is that it's going to have lots of ideas and creativity on what to do if you're in person and social distancing what to do if you're doing Zoom. So, you know, just pulling out all stops to have it be over the top. And we're working on the essentials box, which is introducing materials and how do you yeah. do that? And yeah. Yeah, amazing. Love it. Yeah. And um, also one thing I want to ask for most of the Chinese teacher, you know, we have lots of international schools. So those Chinese teacher, they are very good at English. But we still have a big majority of Chinese teachers work in a public kindergarten or just normal private kindergarten. Their English is not that good. So are you thinking like maybe do some training like uh, bilingual, like got some Chinese yes. kind of thing to help them? Because I have, in fact, I had a, like I said, there was a company in um, China that was, talking to me about they wanted to bring fairy dust to China and translate everything. And then um, again, they moved towards infant and toddlers. So I withdrew from it, but I'm definitely open to it. I've had, you know, several conversations. So when I have the right partnership, I'll hundred percent do that. Yeah. It would be amazing. Okay. Cause I think you, loads of people would jump on it. Yeah. They, they, they love in China. It's very, they love training. They love trying to learn. They're very, you know, on trying to do learning especially online learning but they because it's very difficult for them to travel mm. um not sure intensive to travel it's much easier they can access online trainings so would it be something that if fairy dust on my platform i had a whole section in chinese yeah that that they work. could find it yeah you just get someone like translate all the document you already had and then maybe like put on the Chinese subtitle on your original uh, videos that mm. people can, right. I was thinking can like, access your link in China without problem, without yeah. like any like. Yeah, we can all That's what I was wondering. The, the Thinkific, where the wonder, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it all works no problem in China. We had a session actually where all the teachers watched um, uh, one of them in our library uh, last semester. Awesome, yeah. But, uh, why I ask you, because every time I share fairy dust teaching to other teachers, they're like, oh, it's all English again. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will, I, I do, it's so funny because I feel really, in fact, if, with my team, we've talked about it. Mm. And uh, one of my business, well, my main business uh, partner is Chinese. And so she, her family actually does virtual learning, uh, teaching English to Chinese 
you know, and they live in Canada. So, you know, I have the resources. I just have to, you know, jump, but I think it's, it's next. The biggest thing I'm working on is the wonder box. Then I redoing the wonder based teaching training and um, then Chinese. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds amazing. Yeah. Thank you again. And thank you for talking with us. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It was so much fun. Yeah. I, and thank you so much.